Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and this morning I'm speaking with Alastair Patton who has written a book called Of Marsupials and Men published by Black Inc. in Australia. Um, Alastair is a journalist and an author but he's a journalist at the moment working for News Corporation in Melbourne. I would like to welcome him to the show. Good morning, Alastair. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Now, could you begin by letting us know how you came to write this book? Yeah, well, it's a bit of a long story. Um, I guess uh, as a child I was always interested in nature and going out on bushwalks here in Australia and trying to spot koalas in trees and things like that. And then I studied history um, at university and went into journalism, as you say, but history has always been a, a love of mine. I read a lot of um, history books and, of course, we're all engrossed with the, uh, the big major characters in, in world history, but I've always been intrigued by some of the little characters you see in the background in some of those stories and um, I guess with a particular nature focus from where my interest was started digging into some of those uh, stories and went down some really interesting and bizarre sort of uh, rabbit holes you might say and yeah encouraged uh, uncovered all these interesting characters that um, really helped us understand Australia's interesting animals and sort of I think it tells a bit of a story of how we see ourselves as Australians from when they first arrived and you know the British and colonists in the sort of late 1700s and what their first reactions were through to how we view our animals today, which I think most people, you know, are really beloved and part of, essentially part of our national character. Mm. That is a sense I got from reading it. It does, it does actually have a, as an Australian who read the book, you do get that sense of just how the relationship between people in Australia and the animals on the continent um, developed. The book has a lot of illustrations as well, which I think is is great. One question I wanted to ask, and just to get your theory on this, um, the pictures of Australian animals seem to get better as years go on. So they start off quite poor when someone has to first draw a kangaroo or an emu or a platypus, and then they finally start getting better. What do you think made it so difficult to draw something? Uh, Well, I think one, I mean, one very practical aspect of it was that in those very early um, ships that came over, especially we say the first fleet, they were bringing all these convicts and there weren't really any naturalists or trained people on the ships. So some of these early descriptions and early drawings are by, um, you know, someone who might be a surgeon on the ship or something like that. Obviously people had a lot of different uh, interests and, and tell, you know, your skills could range over a wide variety of areas in those days. But um, so that was probably one little practical area. So they're mostly probably amateurs and, and that is a bit of the, the tale of the book um, in those early years that they were really um, people with not much formal scientific training who just found these things interesting and decided to write about them or go and um, try and trap them or or, uh, investigate these strange creatures. But the other thing that was really the overarching thing, which uh, sort of the first portion of the book really looks at, is that it was just so strange and different to anything that they were used to seeing. Something like a kangaroo was just completely baffling to um, these English uh, settlers especially. And I think um, there was a kind of a, a religious aspect to it and the all tied in with the empire um, and that the science was sort of starting to take off and natural science in the uh, early 1800s around that time and they thought they had a pretty good idea of what the natural world sort of looked like. You know, it was all 
laid out by God and you had humans at the top and then this sort of hierarchy of animals uh, below and, you know, it was all about what animals could do that was useful to humans. So, you know, sort of domestic animals and cattle and these things were, were very useful and then there were other sort of less useful animals and then they sailed across the other side of the world and just came across all these weird creatures that didn't really fit into this picture at all. So, um, you know, try to figure out what was the purpose of a, a kangaroo or a platypus or a, uh, a koala that just sort of sat in the tree all day. I think really it took them a while to get their heads around all that sort of thing. Right. Um, and with that, so the, the, the book begins with this chapter called Doing Nature's Good Work. And I understood that title as, as suggesting that these people are coming to Australia and they think by introducing lots of animals into the country, they're actually doing this country good. Um, is that the is, is that what that, that chapter addresses? And can you talk about what was actually happening back then? We're talking in the 1800s mostly, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it really focuses on this period. It was actually a fairly short period, really, in the 1850s and 60s where this idea took hold of, called uh, acclimatisation where you could introduce animals from one part of the world to another part of the world where um, they could be used for, you know, for farming or those sort of things. But um, And so there were ideas in England that they could get, you know, gazelles and things over from Africa and that they would, you know, provide food for the, the, the population there. But when it came to Australia, it was sort of tied in with this idea of that the animals here were just sort of weird and, useless um, and they were you know, sort of morally deficient in some weird way. Um, so we could improve things by bringing over, you know, better animals from other countries. So, um, you know, and we know what the effects of that have been over the years with things like foxes and rabbits that got introduced to Australia that have, you know, devastated the, uh, the natural landscape and we still have to deal with those today. But there were some other, you know, weird and, and wonderful theories that they had that, you know, there were suggestions of introducing monkeys into the parks in Melbourne or, or boa constrictors that would, um, you know, provide a, some entertainment for people when they went uh, for a stroll in a park or something like that. I think yaks were on the list at one stage that uh, never, those, some of those, thankfully, um, didn't quite come off. But, yeah, it only lasted probably five or ten years. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of uh, long-term damage that we're still dealing with. And why do you think these the, the people who introduced these animals didn't or maybe they did did they actually think this could be a bad idea did, did, did why did they not they're scientists you would have thought that would have been something that might have occurred to them that you can't well, just go and yeah. you would but um yeah i don't think it really did occur to them at all i mean i think their view of nature was you know very different to what we um, see it today and you know they liked things to be very orderly and um yeah for all the animals to sort of have a purpose and I don't think they really considered the, all the, the negative implications, although it didn't take too long for something like the rabbit, once they got out of control, um, to realise that, uh, you know, that probably wasn't going quite as well as what they thought when they, you know, we thought we'll just release a few rabbits that we can uh, go hunting for. That's a, that's a good um, worthwhile pursuit for people to do on, on their weekends and so on because they were quite worried about, you know, young people might go to a coffee house or gambling or something really, you know, um, morally questionable like that so much better that they be outside in a in a garden with some monkeys swinging in the trees to provide them with some entertainment or go on a hunt and you know hunting in a echidna or something is not very exciting so we'll release some foxes or deer or rabbits for, for those kind of activities and um i mean thankfully the Victorian Acclimatisation Society, which was the, the biggest one in uh, Australia and, you know, one of the biggest in the world, but it, it evolved eventually into um, basically what became the Melbourne Zoo. Like their initial collection 
they decided they had this holding area where they were keeping all these animals and then they thought, well, maybe we could actually open this to the public and it evolved and, you know, took a while but got to, you know, thankfully now we have a zoo. So some good things have come out of it but, um, yeah, I don't, you know, they call themselves scientists but as I say, there wasn't a lot of formal scientific training going on and, you know, one thing I mentioned is that, you know, the scientific, uh, you know, science was only just getting formalised as to what we know it today but the idea of the scientific method, you know, Newton's ideas were, were pretty well established by that time and they didn't really follow any of that um, to the letter. It was just let all the animals go and, and see what happens rather than, you know, there was no follow-up to see what kind of impact they were having. Mm. The next movement that seems to happen in in our embryonic white Australia back then is animals start being transported all over the world for sale and um, just shipped out, and some of the some of the um, figures that you supply in the book, for example, you you, you say that the um, there's an article you refer to in the Register, a South Australian newspaper, described ships with up to thirty thousand parrots departing on a regular basis with four hundred gallon drums of seed to feed them, destined for zoos and private collections and all the sorts of things. Um, that sounds well, a couple of things i like you to comment on it sounds again and this is i suppose a common feature of humanity that the animals seem to get the worst end of the deal whenever we come across them but and secondly it's what was the purpose of such massive movement of animals uh well yeah i think your, your first point is accurate and um, that's a pretty sort of quick one to answer that is that is true and one thing i tried to look into which is um it's hard to find too much information because they didn't um as you say, the animals weren't the main consideration, but trying to get a bit of a sense of how hard that was to actually, you know, you see these numbers and it's just crazy and trying to picture, you know, what are the logistics of how do you feed all these animals on a, on a journey that might take a few months from one side of the world to the other. And, you know, part of the calculation with the huge numbers was that you kind of knew that a lot of them weren't going to make it. So the more you put on the ship, you know, the better chance you had that enough would get to the other side that would be useful. Um, but it is a kind of a, and I found it interesting that at the same time as these, uh british settlers who were moving to australia thinking the animals here aren't much good we need to bring you know more european animals that we're used to over here that they were sending australian animals back the other way because they were found in england and in europe and america to be you know a real curiosity and there was um, a, a sort of a you know these menageries and zoos and things were starting to come together traveling sideshows these kinds of things but it was sort of an odd time in London in particular, which I've probably looked at the most, where you could go into a menagerie in Piccadilly or the East End and just buy yourself a flamingo or um, a kangaroo or, like you say, there's a description in there of one of these um, uh, sort of warehouses on the East End near the docks there where the ships would unload from the other side of the world, bringing all kinds of things from, you know, the New World back to London and there would be dealers there trying to get their hands on, you know, what, what have they come back with, something quirky and interesting that we might be able to sell and yeah if you were well enough off in uh, london you could go down and, and purchase any of these kind of animals and you know there were aboriginal artifacts and things as well in those sort of collections and you know coming off the ships but um yeah there's a description of someone opening it uh being led in upstairs to a room and they described it as like you know uh, a jet engine kind of style well, i suppose it wouldn't have been a jet engine at that stage but <laughs> a uh, maybe a locomotive or something it's a huge um cacophony of sound and when they open the door there's just thousands and thousands of parrots um and that have been you know sort of trying to imagine how you would get them off the ship and then you know shove them in the the room and shut the door um behind them but um yeah they, you know and, and those sort of birds were quite popular in english households at that time 
Mm. Now, sticking with birds, I'd like you to comment on a man you introduced into the book, a man called John Gould, who was around in the 1800s, who has a lot to do with birds. He seemed to do some some scientific things. He wrote a, a book called The Birds of Australia. He, he tried to write this massive book. He seems to have done some excellent illustrations of animals. He also seems to have liked to shoot birds. And um, one comment I'll just I'll pass to you after this is um, he, he has this comment where he finds this bird, these, I don't know what they are, some birds in the bush somewhere, and he says, they're so remarkably tame that any number of shots may be fired among them without causing the slightest alarm, but to any of those that are actually wounded. Is it the way he describes these these sort of birds? So how do you sort of paint a picture of this man and how all these elements come together in him? Yeah, well, John Gould is a, is a really interesting character and one of the um, sort of giant figures of Australian early natural, you know, natural science, I guess. And he was a, um, a prominent naturalist and, and bird expert in London. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, really interesting things that he did there was that he examined the finches that um, Charles Darwin brought back from his big worldwide expedition on the Beagle and he was sort of one of the first ones to point out that these different finches from the different islands in the Galapagos had slightly different beaks and um, you know put sort of Darwin thinking about well what would cause that and then you know down the track to sort of uh, the idea of natural selection and evolution, which he sort of published you know ten or twenty years after that. But then John Gould actually was supposed to write up the um, natural sort of descriptions from um, Darwin's voyage, but he decided that uh, he actually put that plan on hold because he had um, a better kind of a business proposition because he was a very he was very into birds, but he was also a very shrewd sort of a businessman, and his wife um, her. Uh, brothers, I think, actually had moved to Australia and had a property in the Hunter Valley. And this sort of opened his eyes to the possibility of there's this whole continent with all these birds that nobody's really um, catalogued. And there could be a real business opportunity there for him to do that. So he came to Australia and he was only here for about 18 months from um, September 1838 to April 1840. Um, And in that time, he did capture and catalogue thousands of Australian birds and yeah I think that was something that he just really thought was fantastic that he could wander down the main street of Adelaide and there were all these birds everywhere because they were not um, really accustomed to really people being around so they weren't afraid of humans so they'd all just sit out um, you know on the main street and he could just fire at uh, you know a, a branch that had 50 birds on it and the birds that weren't hit you know, didn't really realise what was going on, so they just sort of hung around because that was the, the sort of thing that's hard for us to get ahead around now is that I think Jill, uh, John Gould would have considered himself to be a bird lover um, and a naturalist and a scientist, but to catalogue the birds, which is what was his main aim, meant shooting them. Um, and there was sort of quite an art to doing that, to being able to stalk up when these, you know, this wife hit some of these places a bit easier. But, in you know, he had would go out into the bush with feathers on his hat and all this sort of thing and sneak through the bush and... Um, try and shoot the birds so then that he could study them properly and, you know, write, you know, measure them and, and write about them and then put them in a sort of a pickle them and put them in a jar and send them back to London. So that was kind of his whole uh, operation. And it's quite ironic that there's um, the John Gould League is um, an Australian bird lover's sort of society, which I remember when I was at uh, primary school, they had the Gould League posters on the wall with all the different birds. Um, and they actually have a pledge. If you sign up to the Gould League as a, a child, you, uh, the pledge is, I hereby promise that I will protect native birds and not collect their eggs. I also promise that I will endeavour to prevent others from injuring native birds and destroying their eggs. But um, John Gould himself wasn't 
um, uh, didn't bother him at all that he would just raid birds' nests and steal their eggs or shoot them even in their nest, which was even at that time was considered quite uh, unsportsmanlike. Mm. And what what was that? Was that a school in the country that you for the John Gould? Oh, no, I was I was in Melbourne, so um, yeah, I suppose it probably is. Maybe uh, people in the country might be more familiar with it, but. Um, yeah, that's. I, I wasn't a member of the John Gould Society, but I do remember those posters that we had, um, just with all you know the different types of Australian birds, and they they put out a lot of those posters that sort of uh, are used in schools across Australia. Now, the the bird chapter also introduces um, Amelie Dietrich, a German lady, who um, I'll ask you to speak about her. But before that, was it hard to find? It seems to have been dominated by, I imagine, sort of gouty middle-aged men running around shooting animals <laughs> yes was it hard to find a um a a, a, a lady doing something like this? having any history on the public record of being involved in cataloging what was seen in australia yeah, I mean, like, it, 100% it was dominated by men. And, like, that picture you describe, if there's a picture of John Gould in the book, it is just absolutely, as you would imagine, him, like the sort of portly middle-aged, you know, guy with the big mutton chop sideburns and, you know, in that sort of uh, uh, Victorian England sort of look. So um, it is mostly men. But there were a few women as well. And, it, yeah, um, it was always a bit of a, uh, a find when – uh, when I came across a, an example of a woman who was out doing some of these things and they it generally wasn't as sort of socially acceptable. Um, and Emily Dietrich is a really interesting character because she was um, sort of, she was known as the little German woman. And I think she through her whole life didn't really worry too much about what other people thought of her and her appearance was often commented on, which I suppose is, um, we're sort of hopefully starting to get away from that, but it has been going on forever for uh, you know women when they're sort of trying to venture into a more male-dominated uh, field. But uh, yeah, she was active mainly in Queensland and um, was out collecting um, for German museums. And yeah, she just collected an enormous amount of uh, Australian animals and and all kinds of bizarre things. Like she would send back you know shiploads of uh, with crates of um, uh, you know again like I say these sort of pickled animals but there'd be you know stick insects or you know different types of wood and just the list just goes on and on for all the all the crazy things that she um, collected so yeah she uh, I think there was a quote that um, uh, in, a, in a, a museum said that you know she rivaled the great John Gould for her contribution to you know what we know about Australia's history and you know we, I think we'll get into some talk about snakes soon but she found a um, a snake which was uh, later catalogued as the uh, the Queensland taipan, which had a quite a big influence in Australian history. And then this story that I've written, so, you know, she was doing that and there were, um, I think she took a stuffed koala back to Germany and crocodiles and all kinds of things. But the, that chapter does also touch on some of the darker aspects of this story I talked about earlier where, you know, Aboriginal artefacts were sort of souvenired and, and sent back Um with the Australian animals early on and, and she certainly played a role in that and there's a, a really disturbing story really where um, she was staying with a family in Queensland and reportedly um, asked one of the um, servants, oh, would you be able to shoot an Aboriginal man for me so I can take his, you know, have a specimen basically um, and hopefully we don't think that actually happened but, um, yeah, it sort of is a an example of the, some of the thinking that went on that the, you know, when Australian animals were starting to be seen as something really interesting and worth studying that Indigenous people were classed in a similar kind of category and, and you know, and some Indigenous people ended up, you know, from Australia were coerced into travelling overseas and ended up in some of these travelling menageries in America and, and Europe as well. So, yeah, some pretty um, really, yeah, that's 
like the the book, I think, is hopefully a nice, uh, um, you know, breezy sort of pacey read that has a lot of interesting, quirky, you know, funny stories. But there are some, you know, dark aspects of it as well that I think it's important to to shine a light on. Yeah, I was going to ask about the um that incident, asking to to shoot shoot the the indigenous person. Um, was so obviously it was that did it looks like it didn't happen, which is probably good. Obviously, it's good. But um, it seems as though the reason it might not have happened was because there might have been a moral objection. But I wondered if it was, if there was some suggestion that it was that that was sort of if the person that wanted to do it, they could have done it without any sort of legal concern. It seems very very serious thing to suggest. But who would even suggest that if it wasn't legal? So do you have any idea if, if that was the kind of done thing almost? Oh, for yeah. Ju- I mean. Yeah, I mean, you could go down a whole another dark path on that. But in that, you know, in the 1800s in Australia, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people were shot, unfortunately. And I think, you know, it can be a, a bit of a, a, a complicated story, but um, which I'm actually reading a lot about at the moment. But, um, I think technically they were sort of British subjects, so they were subject to, um, you know, protected by the law. But in practice, and especially, unfortunately, probably in Queensland, worse than anywhere, it really was people just looked the other way um so yeah there were a couple of um high profile there was one very high profile trial in, in new south wales where some white people were uh, hanged eventually for the uh, a massacre of um, a large number of aboriginal people but basically um, you know that was really a very rare example of that ever happening of people being brought to justice and really unfortunately that um uh, just sort of the message that sent was that you just try and don't you know we just do this on the down low now and we don't talk about it as, as quite as openly as we used to, but it definitely still happens. So, yeah, I mean, that that little tale in the book here um, doesn't really go into all that, but it does sort of hint at that, I guess, that, yeah, the fact that someone would even suggest it, with, you know, sort of knowing that, well, I could probably do it without being punished, um, uh, yeah, says quite a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Hmm. Now, the next chapter is about snakes. One thing I liked about this chapter was it it um if you if you start from the back and you think at the moment if someone gets bitten by a snake in Australia you would hope that they have some sort of anti um anti venom around anti venom around to help the person recover and this chapter in a way starts from the beginning and just shows what it actually what effort was taken to get to the point where you do have that medicine available um could you f- just comment a little bit on on that chapter and um. I, mean, I don't want to give away too many of the stories in it. There's so, so I'll let you, if you want to divulge any of the tales in it, you can. I'll leave it up to you because it's, it's just worth reading in full. Yeah, well, the, I suppose, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, the story does have a bit of a, a charts, the history of, you know, the development of those, um, you know, Australians and their relationship with, with the animals. And by sort of the turn of the um, 20th century, getting into the, uh, the 1900s, um, Attitudes had evolved quite a bit and the, a lot of the Australian animals were being more appreciated and, and had been studied and people knew a lot more about them. But snakes were probably the one that were really left to last because going back to that initial idea about the sort of hierarchy of animals, the snakes were sort of literally at the bottom um, and, you know, they were sort of seen as dangerous and, and you know, not very nice and it wasn't um, something that people were too enthusiastic to, enthusiastic to study. But then, yeah, this sort of really propelled that around in the, um, you know, not in... 20s around that time when it sort of started but um, before that yeah people started to try to come up with some ways to cure um, 
snake bites. And yeah, they came up with some pretty bizarre and, and creative uh, solutions, which uh, yeah, people can read about in the book. And and then things started to get a little bit more, you know, scientific and did you know, air quotes, I guess you could say. And there's an illustration that's in there from um, the Australian sketcher, but this is uh, sort of going back to 1877 of uh, an experiment in the Melbourne jail where they started, uh, you know, they'd use the jail and captured stray dogs in the streets of Melbourne and use them to um, for these unfortunate snake bite experiments where they would get the, a snake to bite a dog and then inject them with all kinds of weird things and hoping that um, it might uh, save the life of the dog, but unfortunately um, it never really worked. And there were some um, people who were so uh, keen on these ideas that they were sort of prepared to volunteer themselves for the experiments as well, but um, thankfully uh, usually rejected, thankfully, uh, early on there. But, um, yeah, once we get into sort of the 1910, 1920s, around that time, the uh, idea of antivenoms was uh, sort of being developed and um, and vaccines and these things. Uh, Louis Pasteur had, had made a lot of advances in that, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, it really sort of came to these Australian snakes were the, some of the last ones that we didn't have any cures for. And, yeah, I really go into the chapter there and tell a few stories of some of these people that, um, yeah, I just found this amazing that there were men, I think this pretty much was all men, um, who were prepared to and really enthusiastically, you know, put their hands up and say, we'll go out and um, try and capture the snakes because they realised what they needed once the idea of an antivenom was developed and initially they hoped one antivenom would sort of cover all the different types of snakes, but once they discovered that wasn't um, the case, you would have to go and capture an individual type of a particular snake to be able to milk them to get the venom to develop an antivenom for that snake so so the taipan is the one that you know, i probably spent most time talking about as a reference with them um, emily dietrich and um trying to capture a taipan which just seems just a crazy idea in itself and to then milk it to to create a life-saving antivenom which that all did happen but it was a sort of an amazing saga how you know how many attempts and how they actually got hold of one and then it had to get transported to melbourne where it was milked and um you know ends up saving a lot of lives but it was just uh, uh, an incredible story and you know a few people did die along the way now alistair if you have your book in front of you i'm not sure if you do but i um, do yes I, I won't give it away but i just want to and this is hopefully people go and look at the book to see these points but i love on um page 147 your idea for footnote 14 let me find that all right <laughs> yes that was i won't give that away it's worth it's worth it's <laughs> worth experiencing for people to go and look up yes also, <laughs> that was my also, reaction on reading uh what that's describing <laughs> and also on page 151 the name of the um tortoise i think it's very well, that you, you're just reporting on that name but i thought that was good as well Oh, which one was that? Sorry. Oh, the joy. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was, yeah, I mean, that was sort of part of the joy of writing the book that, you know, you're finding these interesting uh, characters and you're reading about them in various different sources in old newspapers or old, um, you know, some of them wrote books or or kept journals and these sort of things. And they'd just be little anecdotes or things like that that you just jump out and have a, have a laugh and think, right, that's got to go in the book. Just It's just uh, something a bit odd that doesn't, um, it adds to the story because it tells you a bit about that person, but, you know, it's just uh Something that I thought needed to go in. <laughs> mm. And these days, do they still have? Do people still have to milk snakes to get to, yeah. to do this work? Yeah, no, that definitely still happens. I think it's a, a little bit more. Um, uh, how would you say? Uh, you know, organised and formal process uh, now is a bit more ad hoc back then and there. So that's sort of, I guess, the story of the book is examined the scientists to. Um, helped us learn about the animals. And the first snake experts were, you know, it was really uh, rough and ready stuff out in the out in the field, but um, I think probably, you know, the Commonwealth 
serum laboratories and places like that. Um, and I think the Australian Reptile Park in um, uh, Gosford, New South Wales, which I tell the Eric Worrell, the, the guy who founded that, and he was sort of one of the real pioneers in this snake um, milking. Um, I think they still do quite a lot there as well, but, um, yeah, probably a bit more. Um, it's a bit of a safer process now than it used to be, but still I wouldn't be volunteering for it. Mm. You have a chapter on platypuses. I'm not sure if that's a plural platypuses or something else, but there's a whole chapter on them. And um, it's a game full of interesting facts. One of the things that I found amazing, which I'd like you to comment on, is there seems to still be a lot that people don't know about the platypus. It seems a very mysterious animal back then and still. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And I mean, that even ties into what you're just saying about the uh, platypuses. I mean, there's sort of no official formal agreement on what the plural of a platypus is. Some people say platypi or there's a, I found an online petition of people saying let's call them platypodes. But um, I think I went with platypuses. I think that makes the most sense. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, and, you know, they um, get their, whole, uh, their own chapter devoted to them because they were so mysterious and so um, hard to study and hard to understand and there was a lot of scientific uh, debate about, you know, um, what sort of animal they actually were, where do they fit into the animal kingdom? And, you know, they have some qualities that are, that are like a mammal, but some that are more like a reptile and some that are, you know, even like aquatic. So, um, and the, the big question that took a long time to resolve was, you know, do they lay eggs? There's, you know, big um, two sides of this scientific debate. And so people went out to try and find platypuses and, and unfortunately, again, a lot of them um, got shot in the process of trying to, you know, decide do they lay eggs or, or not. Um, and uh, David Flay, who was also the guy who milked that taipan, he comes in and out of the story quite a bit, um, uh, was a real giant in this uh, field of, you know, in all natural history in Australia, really, for people in Australia and Melbourne who know Healsville Sanctuary, um, he was really the, the guy who founded that and, and turned it into what we know it today. It's one of their great um, natural animal sort of uh, attractions here um, that that uh, people love. but. Um, he he really was, and platypuses live in that area up around Hillsville and in the creeks up there, and he was able to trap a few and, and keep them in captivity and, and really study them. And um, when he was able to breed a platypus in captivity for the first time in 1943, and that really made worldwide headlines, and it didn't happen again for another 60 years. So, um, I mean, the fact that up until I think it was 2018 or 19, there were no platypuses in overseas zoos at all. I think there's a couple now in San Diego. Um, just illustrates, you know, how hard they are to transport and how little understood really they still are because they're just a very shy um, animal that, you know, you, if you manage to see one in the wild, it's extremely um, special moment because they spend a lot of their time in their burrows or underwater. Um, um, but, yeah, they have all these amazing talents, you know, electro sensors in their bills that can detect shrimps you know wriggling under the mud in the bottom of the creek um and you know poisonous spurs on their hind legs and all kinds of weird things so um yeah I, in, in after researching all the book i have to people ask me you know what's your favorite animal and i have to say the platypus because it's just so incredible and um still so interesting that there's still you know a lot to learn about them yeah the um have you ever had the, have you ever come across one in the wild yourself yeah just a couple of times really probably the the a couple of times fleeting, you know, a few bubbles in a creek. But um, uh, a couple of years ago I was hiking in Tasmania and there's one It was just um, seemed to be really enjoying itself at the base of a waterfall. It would swim in and out of the, the water there and then sort of sit on a rock and scratch itself. And, um, yeah, I just 
that was just one of my favourite experiences out in the wild, just sitting there watching it for, you know, sort of a good half hour or so. Um, that was, um, yeah, a real real standout. Okay. The uh, a later chapter toward the end of the book talks about marsupials in the media, and this is great for people who, I suppose, um, a lot of people who grew up in Australia because you go through the, the, the history, it's almost a little history of wildlife media and um, what role have you seen the media play in either the exploitation of these animals or the conservation of these animals? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing this chapter and I'm exactly as you described, I really grew up um, watching some of these documentaries and you know some of these characters um, on TV who uh, really became high profile Australian celebrities, um, you know, sort of people might obviously know Steve Irwin is, is the most recent example, but I'm talking about going back into the, um, uh, you know, 10, 20, 50 years ago um, and sort of the early days of TV and then even the chapter starts with people before the, the modern media was around and they were writing books and newspaper columns and then into the radio and how it sort of really took off. But um, yeah, I think they played a huge role in um, just bringing that wildlife literally into the uh, we can see it in our living rooms um, and making it, you know, like I say, that that uh, journey that we've come from, from this, these animals being weird and, and unnatural to now they're really beloved and Australians, you know, even if Australians might not see a platypus in the wild too often, you know, we all know and love them because, um, and a lot of it I think is we can attribute to some of these guys, even though they, um, yeah, they were a bit rough around the edges. Um, I think, yeah, their, their heart was definitely in the right place. And thankfully by then we had definitely moved on from the early era where, you know, finding an interesting bird meant that you had to shoot it and pickle it. Um, they were much more about, um, you know, sneaking through the uh, the bush and maybe lifting up a, a piece of bark and seeing what was under there. But, um, yeah, I, I really uh, enjoyed those uh, TV documentaries and TV shows in my youth and, and growing up and, you know, hopefully um, some of that comes across. And I found it really interesting to dig into the stories of some of these, these people and where they came from and, and what they were about. Yeah, they talk about the Taylors, Valerie Taylor and Ron Taylor, and sharks. The sharks don't play a big, big role in this in this book, but um, sharks are in a lot of people's minds in Australia. You, you hear a lot about sharks whenever someone gets bitten by a shark. Um, what? How would you describe um, their their importance toward shark conservation? Oh, I mean, just enormous. Yeah. So Ron and Valerie were a married couple who. Um, uh, unfortunately, Ron's no longer with us, but Valerie still is, and she's still out uh, diving. And they met um, in Sydney, and uh, I think sort of in the 1950s, 60s, around that time, and um, started filming. Uh, I think Ron had an underwater camera, and they were able to um, get their films shown. And they were, you know, bought in America and other countries, and they quickly discovered that, yeah, sharks were what people wanted to see. You know, we still see Shark Week on TV. People are really fascinated by sharks, so they started filming a lot of sharks, and they were involved in some. Uh, sort of hired to work on some you know, big productions of, of movies, including Jaws. So some of the scenes in a, in the movie Jaws that you see of sharks actually swimming in the uh, in the wild where they're real sharks and not the pretend ones, uh, Australian sharks in South Australian waters filmed by the Taylors. Um, and then it was sort of the reaction to some of those movies where people, you know, Jaws came out and obviously it was this enormous hit and people really turned against sharks and thought sharks were terrible and um, and the tailors were, didn't really understand. They just thought 
you know, it was a piece of entertainment and they enjoyed filming it, but um, they were sort of really taken aback by the, the reaction and how, um, you know, sharks became this real villain. Uh, and so they turned their attention to conservation and, you know, trying to educate people about sharks and really, um, yeah, I mean, again, to be like the snakes, you know, it takes a particular type of person, I think, to, to be that um, enamoured with them as they were and there's some... Uh, bizarre you know stories to my mind of, of Valerie saying you know her sharks are just um you know totally misunderstood and and they're really you know cuddly creatures but at the same time she's had experiences where she nearly have you know lost limbs and things like that when um filming didn't go as planned but um yeah I think that has definitely uh, had a huge impact and you really see that um now when there's a, a shark attack which does still happen occasionally I think the attitude even you know 10 20 years ago was really the automatic response was for the authorities to go out and find this shark and kill it basically as a you know retaliation and to I guess try and you know make sure it didn't do it again but you know that was sort of based on this weird idea that you know once sharks were out to try and hunt people but now I think people see that the shark is in its natural environment and I think I quote um a guy in the book who was attacked by a shark in near Perth in the last couple of years and and he said his quote was, you know, you can't blame a shark for being a shark. Um so I think people have a um a much greater understanding of them and yeah, we can definitely thank the, the tailors for a lot of that. Okay. Um so like we should wind down now. So as a last a last question I'd like to ask is the book um ends talking about the importance of ensuring we have healthy populations of native animals. And um, one of the points you, you make is that researchers estimate it would cost $1.6 billion to return all Australian threatened species to healthy status. And then you imagine the reader thinking, wow, well, you know, you're almost, what are, why would we ever do that? But then you make the point that we already spend $12 billion a year on domestic pets. So it actually, $1.6 billion isn't actually that much. But you're writing a book where you're actually really pleading for this. Why do you think it is? Why is it so hard to get um, money spent on conserving animals? I think um, one thing that I found quite interesting, and I sort of tried to paint this picture in the book, is that it's just really hard when people see, if you can go out um, in the bush and you might luckily enough to see a koala, you know, platypuses are pretty elusive anyway. A lot of our animals are, you know, nocturnal and, and elusive. And it's very hard just to comprehend you know, you sort of think, well, there's animals out there, they, they must be doing all right, um, to really realise how many there used to be compared to what there are now. And, like, you know, koalas are now endangered in Queensland and New South Wales and the ACT, and I think there's about 40,000 koalas left in Australia, and 40,000 even sort of sounds like a, a reasonable number, but then you realise that there were millions of koalas that were killed just for their skins in, um, you know, when we had a sort of a, a fur industry, uh, you know, 100 years ago. So... You know, there used to be millions of koalas in the, you know, uh, in the in the bush, and now there's you know only forty thousand. So, um, yeah, it's sort of hopefully I can try and try and get that across. And there's a great description of you know whales that um, some of the early explorers, when they were you know sailing into um, you know Hobart, for example, they said it was actually quite dangerous sailing up the river because there were so many whales that the you know ship was sort of trying to dodge them as it, as it came in. And now, um, you know, if you go out on a whale watching. Uh, expedition and happen to see one you know that's a real treat so um yeah it's just sort of hard for us to get our head around how many animals there were back in those days and so you know what the the full you know the comparison is now to to what it was back then and and is the the concern is that the numbers just keep dropping without people really realizing until it gets a point where it's 
you know, almost too late. Um, and, I, yeah, I just think that would be an absolute tragedy if, you know, something like the koala would be just – I can't imagine – having a you know me living or having my kids live in a um a country where you know we have to say we used to have koalas and we don't have them anymore i mean that just would be absolutely tragic um and you know obviously a koala is a very high profile example but there's lots of others that are um you know really in trouble as well so um that's probably the the easiest explanation that it's you know someone has to take you know and it's a, a government sort of thing that they have to take responsibility for saying um you know this is a, an issue that's important enough for us to devote these resources to it. And one number that I found, which I found, you know, really uh, took me by surprise, I guess, in the book was how much they spend um, in the US on nature conservation and on threatened species. And they've got a similar number of sort of species to what we do, but um, they spend far, far more money on um, conserving their native animals. So, you know, sort of think you don't really think of America as being, you know, pioneers in that sort of field. But, um, you know, if they can do it, I can't see, you know, why we can't do it. And I think, you know, it's not a politics uh, show, but I, I think there are some movements in the right direction recently that the, some of these issues that were really neglected for a long time are starting to be at least talked about. Um, so hopefully that leads to um, some positive action because, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it would you know, part of the story of the book is the relationship between animals and, and people here in Australia. And, you know, obviously I think the animals, you know, deserve to survive and, and um, for the species to continue and um, for the sake of biodiversity has its own intrinsic worth, but also, you know, as a country and for us as Australians, I think it, it makes us a, a better, richer country to have these amazing animals around us that, that we all love and to not have them there would, would be, yeah, I really would hate to see that happen. Mm. Okay, Alistair. Well, thank you for your time. Um, before we go, what do you do? You have any? And do you have a next book in mind? Well, the the subject that we touched on earlier, when you mentioned about Emily Dietrich, about um, the uh, Indigenous Australians and the sort of uh, what they suffered in in this similar sort of uh, time period, is I think something that I've been reading a lot about, and I would like to like to write about. We'll see see how we go. But um, they do get. You know, I tried not to uh, leave them out of this story because obviously, you know they were here for thousands and tens of thousands of years before the Europeans arrived. But this book is really mainly about European settlers and, and what their attitudes were. And, and they were sort of the, the, the naturalists and scientists who um, generated a lot of these stories. But I do try and touch on the, the Indigenous perspectives in it as well. But I think, um, yeah, I think there's, a, there's a, a bit of a gap there that we don't talk a lot about. Um, which I, th I feel like it's being more recognised now that if you go somewhere, say, for instance, as a tourist, they'll talk about the um, history and the ancient human history of you know, the Indigenous people who um, owned the, the land originally. And then we talk about the Europeans arrived and then this is what happened after that. And it's sort of that crossover period we don't really like to talk about too much. It's like how did we get from there to here and, and what happened to the, the people who were there originally. And, it's yeah, it's pretty – some of the stories of, of reading are pretty incredible about um, – you know, they didn't just uh, melt away into the bush. There was there was some pretty um, fierce fighting that went on. That um, really, I think, is a, an important part of Australian history that probably doesn't doesn't get talked about enough. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm finding interesting to read about at the moment. And yeah, if I get the chance, I'd love to write about it as well. Okay, Alistair. Well, thank you very much for your time again, and all the best with your next book. Fantastic. Thank you.